We're back again with the second half of our interview with linguist Dr. Matt Boudelier. If you missed part one, you may want to go back and listen to that episode first. In part one, we discussed the Nordic languages of Tolkien's Middle Earth and the kinds of linguistic stereotypes that manifest in Tolkien's writings. In part two, we consider more broadly how we imagine the past in medieval fantasy and how those perceptions translate into racial typecasting in film. Welcome to Crossing North, a podcast where we learn from Nordic and Baltic artists, scholars, and community members to better understand our world, our communities, and ourselves. Coming to you from the Scandinavian Studies Department and Baltic Studies Program at the University of Washington in Seattle, I'm your host, Colin Joya Connors. Popular literature and movies today have shaped so much our perceptions of the past. And like when we think about elves and dwarves in Old Norse sagas, a lot of that imagination we are getting from these retellings from Tolkien and, and from other people. So it's, it's really important also to be critical of the way that we see them in movies today. Your, your question earlier of like, how might a young Asian person see themselves in the literature may be, may be more influenced by the movies today mm -hmm. than by the texts yes. itself. Yeah. I think that the movies are, are in some way equally influential, at least nowadays. So, yeah. so Peter Jackson had to make some choices about how he was going to represent people. Um, yes, he did. Yeah. <laughs> Would, would, would you tell me uh, about those? Yes. Well, yeah. As It's pretty visible, I guess, in the movie itself. You get an, the idea that elves are tall, thin, blonde, white people. I mean, in, in, in the Peter Jackson version, I think that, that's sort of, that's like a requirement. Some, I guess maybe not necessarily blonde. Maybe some elves have like lightish brown hair. But, but, they, but they bleach. Okay. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. At least that's how they look. Yeah, that is how they look, right? I think they're almost all of them are basically blonde. Yeah. Um. Anyway, certainly, as as far as I can remember, all of them are white, and um, it seems from the movies that hobbits are all pretty much white as well. Um. So yeah, and I don't know how that casting decision was made or communicated um, for the Lord of the Rings. However, something very interesting happened when they started doing the Hobbit movies. Somebody, some casting director who I believe is unnamed, posted a, what do you, like an ad, like a casting, like a call for, for auditions or something. To, you can audition to be a Hobbit in the, in, the, in the first installment of the new Hobbit trilogy. And I have the ad in front of me here, a copy of it. And they say, essential requirements, men and women, 16 to 80 years old. It's a pretty broad variety there. We're not accusing them of ageism, certainly. Um, men must be under 180 centimeters. That's 5 foot 7 inches. Women must be under 158 uh, centimeters, 5 foot 2 inches, and should have light skin tones. That's explicit on the, on the bill. Yeah, and then at the end it says, please note, this casting call is for people who fit the above requirements only. So they're pretty clear that they're looking for white people for hobbits. So someone lost their job over this because there was a, a woman of Pakistani heritage in, in, I guess she was a 
resident of New Zealand or New Zealand citizen and she auditioned and they told her no because her skin was too dark, basically. And uh, the casting director in question lost their job over this. I don't know that it was only the responsibility of this one casting agent or whether it, it this came from higher up. I have a hunch that this person lost their job and, and was sort of taking the blame as a kind of scapegoat and maybe the opinion was more widespread than this one person that hobbits should be white because you know if you look back in the lord of the rings trilogy which came before the hobbit trilogy the hobbits are all white and the elves are all white so why wouldn't it be the same so it is very again for lack of a better word interesting to me that we as a culture now maybe thanks to peter jackson but maybe since before peter jackson perceive the hobbits as white and maybe that's because we have Tolkien's idea that they're kind of like rural English people I mean you know they have this sort of rural English country life I guess but at the same time I wonder why that's the case why that has to be the case and yeah because I mean even in even in mid-century England there were people of color this is this is this is about to get a lot more complicated, but I think that a lot of what this has to do with is this sort of societal perception of not necessarily mid-century England, but all of medieval Europe or most of medieval Europe as basically a time before the kind of like racial mixing or ethnic mixing that we're perceived to have nowadays. And but there's this myth out there that there were only white people in medieval Europe. And so that's why, because th this is like supposedly before like any influx of, you know, immigrants who didn't have skin that was, you know, very white. Right. And this is an idea which is totally wrong because people traveled, cultures met, the medieval world was a globalized one. Of course. Yeah. yeah. People, I mean, people were trading with people from all over the world and with trade comes immigration. I was just watching uh, a documentary. The other, This isn't about Europe, but the other week about uh, Central and West and Western China, in particular, the Silk Road. And basically all along the Silk Road, you have these hubs of Islam that cropped up in the early Islamic period. And the reason for that is that just by trade alone, religions spread and languages can spread and cultures can spread. And of course, this was happening in Europe too, uh, in and out of Europe. But this is, this is, this happens all the time everywhere. As long as there's transportation and economies, there are people moving and there are languages moving and there are cultures moving. But for some reason, we tend to envision medieval Europe as a place of only what nowadays we would call white people, even though their perceptions of race in the Middle Ages were kind of different from our own. With Tolkien's medieval fantasy, yeah. we, we tend to project back that idea of the medieval world being a white world and think of the hobbits as being white when that really says a lot more about us in our world today because it's a work of fiction it, or it's it's fantasy. Exactly. There's, there's no reason that the hobbits have to be any one skin tone. <clears throat> exactly. It's fantasy. It's fiction. A couple of years ago, or maybe last year, there was there was a miniseries, I think, about the Trojan War. I think it was called, it's not the movie Troy. I don't know if it was called Troy or what, but anyway, Achilles, um, sort of the main character, was cast as 
was cast uh, by a black or as a black actor. So oh yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I watched a few episodes of this on Netflix. Do, yes. Do you remember yeah. what what it's called? I think it's just called Troy. Okay. I uh, think it might be Troy, like fall of an empire, fall of a city, or something like that. Something dramatic. Yeah, I'll I'll add it in in post production. Okay. <laughs> but but yeah, right. The, and they have all of the Greek gods in it, and a lot of the the gods are cast as black actors too. Mm-hmm. And I remember when this came out or when when the casting was announced there was this big thing on the internet like how can how can Achilles I'm pretty sure it was Achilles how can Achilles be black I mean it just doesn't make sense he was Greek look at Greek people but okay but first of all you know the epics of Homer are essentially fiction uh well they're they're of course based on some factual reality but we have no idea what the historical Achilles looked like if if there oh, let, let's assume there was a historical Achilles which there probably wasn't. We don't know if he was tall or short or if he what color hair he had or if he had a beard or not or if he had pierced ears or what. Um well, I suppose some of that is maybe cultural. Um but there was so much interchange between the Greek islands and the Mediterranean and North Africa and even even further into Africa. People were coming from, you know, all over the place and going all over the place. And anyway, anyway, the point is a lot of people objected to to this casting because they said it was historically inaccurate. And I think we have the same – we tend to have the same reaction against casting people of color in Middle Earth as hobbits. I mean theoretically because I'm not sure that it's happened. We have this idea that they should be white – yeah, I, I think people get upset with casting choices in other kinds of artistic decisions in in films when they don't match a person's imagination yes. of a world. And so that really says a lot more about the audience and their ideas than about anything that necessarily is in the text. Absolutely. I mean, I think I would extend that and say that The Lord of the Rings probably, how it's written, probably says a lot about how Tolkien saw the world, um, for better or worse, and the assumptions that he made about the world. Uh, and yes, and if if readers are imagining when, when it's not explicitly indicated that everybody in this kind of fictional medieval Europe is has light skin tones, as as the casting bill was asking for, then exactly, I think I agree with you. It says a lot more about the people assuming that than it does about Middle Earth itself. Certainly more than it does about medieval Europe itself. But people just for some reason hate being told that the real medieval world was not like that. Uh, there was also, I think a year ago, there was this whole stink on, I don't know, Facebook or Twitter, maybe uh, the, the body of somebody or a tomb, somebody maybe it was, was dug up in England in modern day or the UK somewhere. And this person like genetically had traits that we would consider African or something, North African. And everybody was, uh, all the historians were like, oh, well, of course, because people were going all over the place um, back then, just like they are now. Uh, there were movements between cultures and People brought their their languages and their religions with them, but uh, I don't I don't know how you can argue against facts. But a lot of people tried to say, well, this is like this is impossible, or or this what's going on here? This is an outlier. Like surely there were no like you know the black people or people with darker skin in in England. How is this possibly a thing? People are really opinionated about this. Who let's just say don't have degrees in history or anthropology or yeah. I think one thing that I want to talk about is with the films because they they changed a number of things from the books. It's not just, I mean, we're already talking about how 
just the choice of who you're casting is a deliberate decision that is not based in the book. So you can't make a faithful retelling when you have to imagine so many things and make creative decisions. Of course. In the film that you're going to make. So it's it's, it's hard to, to criticize the filmmakers for not being true to the book because they have to make choices. Right. But they also made a lot of interesting choices that were, I, I thought, really great and really offer some hope for how we think about texts that we that we read and we love so much and seeing different versions of them. And, and that is just the how they changed the roles of women in the film. Yes. I said before how I recently read The Lord of the Rings for the first time. I saw all the movies when I was in high school. And now I am starting to rewatch them and I'm rewatching them with my wife, who is also a historical linguist, also a huge Tolkien fan. So as we're watching the movies, she's pausing it every five seconds to tell me and like fill me in on extra like trivia and things from the books. Good. Uh, it's fantastic. And it's, and it's so helpful because a lot of things go over my head and definitely went over my head when I was 15 years old and watching the movies. What kinds of things? So early in the, the fellowship, Frodo is uh, going to Rivendell and he's getting really weak. Uh, he's not going to make it. And so in the movies, Arwen picks him up, puts her on his horse and takes him all the way to, to Rivendell. And that's different. It's a different character in, in the books. And that choice is market driven. Like the producers of the film saying like, well, this movie would probably be more appealing to people if we had more women in it. So how can we increase their roles? So what? I think that's great. They're yeah. editing it. Like I was saying, they're editing it for a time and a place for a particular audience. They're taking their audience into account, which is fantastic. And that's what all storytellers do in all times. Mm -hmm. So it's not, it's, it's not a, a bad thing. And if we're trying to say like, well, it's medieval fanfic, like this is the most like medieval thing that, that you could do is to make changes to the story based on what your audience wants to hear. When you are when you are doing oral storytelling, and that's where a lot of Tolkien's inspiration comes from, our Old Norse texts, Beowulf, all enjoyed some like oral composition before they were written down and put into the form that we have today. Um, someone's telling a story, they know sort of like all the beats of the story that they need to hit. And they might take some of those beats out if they know they're not going to play well with the audience. And they might give some characters a bigger role if they know people really like those. And so a lot of the meaning then is just in the context of what the audience knows and what they are looking for in the experience. And so Arwen coming into this moment makes total perfect sense for the way the stories are, are told. It gives a lot more meaning to the relationship between her and, and Aragorn. Mm -hmm. And... It's this kind of like swapping in and out of characters that happens all the time in oral story traditions. If you think about Old Norse sagas, like we have, in some cases, multiple versions of the same story. And you can see this kind of thing happening. Yeah. In other cases, we only have one version. And it makes you think about just sort of the multiverse. Of what there might have been. Of, of what there might have been and, and what people the way they retold them in, in their own lives. That's a good point. Absolutely. Um, to change a story in an, I mean, you're inherently just by casting anybody, you're making a statement about something previous, something prior, or you're, you're deliberately changing something or you're subconsciously changing something. That's all fine. That's all very natural. And that's how storytelling works and has always worked. I mean, Gandalf or Tolkien <laughs> took the, the character Gandalf, or at least the name Gandalf from this this dwarf, I believe, from Norse mythology and turned him into 
Um, not a man exactly, but a wizard. So yeah, it's all retelling. Um, I was thinking also of, um, I don't know if anybody listening to this is familiar with uh, the Nibelungenlied, uh, the, the middle high German, or at least the middle high is the most famous version story of like Siegfried and the dragon and Siegfried's death. But I believe it's Brunhilde, who is uh, an important woman in the saga, who in she, I think in the Norse version, because it was a Norse version of basically the same story. I don't know if it's the, the Volsung saga or, or one of one of the sagas. But anyway, uh, Brunhilde's character is a Valkyrie, I believe. Um, she's this spirit who some uh, like takes ushers the dead to Valhalla or something like a psychopomp. But um, but in in the Nibelungenlied and the German version, she's like queen of Iceland or something. She's a human, but she's a, or a princess or something. And so it's just somebody in some version was like, huh, I like this. I like this way better. Let's make her that. And so it's it's a woman both ways. It's not replacing. I don't remember what the male elf's name was with Arwen. But yeah, it's, they're adapting it to the time and the place. Yeah, and, and so I, I think there, like, what's the crux of the story? What's, like, the the foundation of it? What are those important beats that holds the story together? And so the idea of good versus evil is really the the big theme of Lord of the Rings. It's, it's fun to think about what kind of retellings could be done in the future also with this story. Yes, I do think it's unfortunate, as long as I'm here airing all of my grievances about this, uh, that in the, the Peter Jackson version, they had this sort of foresight to give women a little bit more action there with Arwen, which I think is great, but really didn't do so much at all with race. Uh, I think I hope that maybe there will be a future version of the Lord of the Rings with some more representation for people of color, I guess. I think yeah. that would be great. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it is problematic, and I think the Peter Jackson versions in this case really do sort of reinforce certain not necessarily un-white supremacist ideas or, or notions or patterns we'll say in the original text yeah no and and i think that that's like is that at the end of the day it doesn't really matter how globalized or how racially diverse the middle ages actually were when we retell these stories in film and in different media the important thing is is not how was it back then how should we do it today but really what do we want the future to be like? Let's just make choices based on what we want. That's and a good so, point. Yeah, and so why not just say, like, we want a world in which people of all skin colors can get roles in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And are and, represented in, in, in any, like, part of this society. Yeah. Yeah. And, and why, should our, why should our, you know, real world racial differences like translate map onto a fantasy world necessarily why should why should they all be what we in in our world consider white that doesn't really make sense if you think about it yeah and it doesn't make any sense at all that a story of good and evil should just be for white people exactly (laughs) right that's what that's what gets me um right well said (laughs) it is our story i guess as as a society us our story to change uh and to to adapt and this is so peter jackson and his Ilk, and you know, people who are, who are making movies about Lord of the Rings or about Harry Potter or about anything are inherently making so many decisions left and right that it's no longer, you can't just take a book and make and objectively just translate everything into a movie. Like you were saying, as soon as you cast, you know, even like Viggo Mortensen as Aragorn, you're making a statement about Aragorn or you're, you're suggesting something about Aragorn, his height or his face or his, his, you know, eyes, his stare. I think he has, he has, you know, those eyes. 
Um, <laughs> you're making a statement that it, that you cannot just that's not canonical that you cannot justify anywhere in the text, but you just think that it would be cool if Aragorn had Viggo Mortensen's eyes. Uh, okay, good, go for it. Um, but and while you're at it, maybe try to, yeah, give representation to communities that aren't necessarily explicitly referenced as much as they probably should have been in the original text. It's your material to do what you want with. Yeah. It's such an opportunity. If you enjoyed our discussion, you should definitely go listen to the Tolkien Heads. They occasionally have guests on the show, like on episode 62, when I joined the Heads to close read the Ride of the Rohirrim and delve into the indigenous stereotypes that manifest in Tolkien's description of the wild men of the Woses. Go to thetolkienheads.com or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from. Links to the Tolkien Heads can be found in the show notes for this episode or on our website. Crossing North is a production of the Scandinavian Studies Department and Baltic Studies Program at the University of Washington in Seattle. Today's episode was written, edited, and produced by me, Colin Joya Connors. Special thanks to visiting lecturer of Danish, Christian Nesby. Today's music was used with permission by Christian Ronar Paulsen. Links to his music can be found in the show notes for this episode or on our website. Visit scandinavian.washington.edu for a full transcript of today's episode or to learn more about the Scandinavian Studies Department. If you are a current or prospective student, consider taking a class or declaring a major. Want to learn the languages that inspired Tolkien? Sign up for Finnish or Old Norse, or consider taking Scandinavian Mythology or the Kalevala and the Epic Tradition. You can find complete course listings for the Scandinavian Studies Department and Baltic Studies Program at scandinavian.washington.edu. Once again, that's scandinavian.washington.edu.